0: Good to to be with you again. It's been a long time uh, since I've been with you, Um, and it's great, yeah, in God's providence how our paths have, you know, come together here and there. I uh, thought about preaching on the book of Job, so I I looked at your website and see if there was any sermons on Job, and there were none (laughs) since at least 2018. Um, So I said to David, I think I'll preach on Job too, and he just thought that would be perfect told me a little bit about what you've been through as a church. And so I am delighted, I don't know if that's the right word for Job, but I am delighted to bring God's word to you today. So if you turn with me, I'm going to do Job chapter 2. I'll cover the whole chapter. You probably know Job 1 well enough. um, That talks about Job's character, his wealth. He's a really rich guy. He's got lots of children. He's the greatest person of the East, that is, east of Jerusalem. Satan wants to test Job's faith, and so he goes to God, and he says, give me power to do something to Job, and and God agrees. And so Satan sends four waves of woe into Job's life, including the death of his children. And then Job gives that famous response, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we read together in chapter 2 this. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, "'From where have you come?' Satan answered the Lord and said, "'From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it.' And the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil?' He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he, Job, took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we not receive good from God and shall not we receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And I'll stop there, and I'll cover the rest a bit later. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I bow now in your presence. May your word be my rule, your spirit my teacher, and your greater glory my supreme concern. I ask this through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. Well, with this... Heavy text, which ends verse 13, which I didn't read, with this line, and they saw, his friends saw that his suffering was very great. With that, this heavy text before us, I thought I'd start on a a light note. Like like most Americans, I grew up watching Sesame Street. One of the games regularly featured on that show was called One of These Things, a game that helped children to grasp the concept between what is the same and what is different. As the lyrics, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish this song? While that was playing in the background, there appeared four boxes on the screen. Some of you remember this? The three of them had something similar, and the fourth one was different. What was different, once you discovered it, and it sometimes took me a while to discover it, but once you discovered it, it was so obvious, the difference. There it is. Well, reading the first part of Job 2, verses 1 through 10, is a bit like watching that skit. In that, most of what we see here, it looks like, or it, hears, it sounds like, what we've already seen and heard in chapter 1. That is, chapter 2, 1 repeats 1, 6. 2, 2 repeats 1, 7. 2, 3 repeats 1, 8. And 2, 5 through 7a is very similar to chapter 1, 11, Now, the purpose of such repetition, it's my contention, is threefold. First, it reemphasizes the person and power of Job's accuser, the Satan. Satan has once again, we're told, walked around the world. And more importantly than that, he has power to do that, ability to do that. He has access to God. And second, this repetition, it reacknowledges God's sovereignty over the situation. Satan has to ask God, God. He has to be granted from God permission to do what he wants to do. And third, it helps us see what's different. What's different? And two differences are obvious but important. First, after God repeats his praise of Job's extraordinary character, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, and because he fears God, he turns away from evil. He adds this commendation. Of Job's resilience. He still holds fast to his integrity. He adds that along with a censure to Satan, although you enticed me against him to destroy him without reason. We might paraphrase that sentence I told you so. I told you that Job, my faithful servant, would remain faithful. Yes, this is the narrator's way of emphasizing the reality of Job's amazing perseverance. The other difference is Satan's new and ingenious strategy. When we read Job 1, 7 through 12, where we read about how Satan wanted to destroy Job's possessions and his, his family, and then chapter 2, 1 through 7, what Satan says in verse 4 stands out like a sore thumb, or a sore everything as the case may be, or is, or will be, for Job skin for skin. Satan, you see, he wants to touch Job's flesh, his body, because he believes that all a man has he will give for his life. In other words, since it's our natural disposition to place an extremely high value on protecting and caring for our own bodies, no one ever hated their own body, Paul says in Ephesians 5, as a general principle. Satan's new angle of attack angle of attack, is banks on Job's self-preservation as well as his natural self-love. We naturally want to protect ourselves. We naturally love ourselves. Satan knows, now he knows, that the loss of wealth and children and assets and financial legacy has not moved Job from praising God to cursing him. And so he surmises that if God allows him to just touch Job's body, then Job would pause in his praise. More than that, he would curse God to his face. Yes, Satan reckons that if God would just give him the green light to turn Job's body black and blue and red, the sores, then he'd turn yellow. That is, he would cower and he would curse. Well, the light turns green. God concede, concedes to the challenger's challenge Behold, he's in your hand. Under one condition, only spare his life. And then soon after, Satan strikes Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, his whole body. His whole body is black and blue and, and red with sores. But will Job turn yellow? Will he cower? Will he curse? Well, today we're going to see his response, both to Satan's strike and to his wife's satanic suggestion. We'll also witness his friends. His friends' remarkable responses as well. And in doing so, looking at these various responses, we will learn God's wisdom on how to and how not to respond to tragedy. We'll start with Job. Job's response to his physical sufferings is both realistic and resilient. Realistic and resilient. The first half of verse 8 describes his realistic reaction to his boil-plagued body. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself as he sat in the ashes. The ashes is the garbage dump where people would burn their trash, and so it turned turn into ashes. The Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, takes it this way. It renders the Hebrew phrase, in the ashes, as on the garbage pile outside the city. In the New Testament, the place, this place is called hell, Guyana, or Jesus sometimes uses the phrase, the fire of hell, Fire that turns to ashes. So Job has descended into this hell, or he's ascended onto the ash heap to symbolize his mortality. The cursed children of Adam will work until we return to the ground, for we are dust to dust. Genesis 3:19, and to embody how he's feeling, his inner emotions. He makes clear after his seven days of silence, when in chapter 3 he gives his suicidal soliloquy, he opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth, that he wishes at this moment in his life that he was dead. He would be better off dead. He wishes his once strong and wise body was lying lifeless in the ashes. He wishes he would just descend into them, if you will. He feels like the damned in hell. Because he longs for death but it eludes him. And because death somehow eludes him, he seeks to soothe himself, as any of us would have done, from the itchiness of this all-intrusive sores by taking a piece of pottery from the rubbish and scraping himself. A measure that is so severe that when his closest friends arrive, they do not recognize him, we're told. Now, as realistic as Job's response is, it is also, and once again, considering chapter 1, it is amazingly resilient. His resilience shows itself in his silence. On the ash heap, he doesn't blame others for his trouble, which we're all tempted to do when we're in a situation like this, or something like this. More importantly, he doesn't curse God. He sits in the silence. Uh, but the silence is broken, isn't it, by his wife's voice. When we read, then his wife said to him, we might hope that some soothing words are going to come out. Relief is at hand. She's alive, and she, she's there with him. She's going to hold his hand and wipe his wounds, console his soul, point her husband heavenward to their God, their, their wise and their good God. But that's not what we get, is it? Instead, she questioned questions her husband's pig-headed piety. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? In other words, do you still think you're innocent, given all that you've gone through? Imagine how hurtful that statement would be. Job knows he's innocent. He'll defend his innocence chapter after chapter. And then she offers a simple solution to the problem, curse God and die, which is a clear echo of chapter 1, verse 11. Satan says that Job will curse God to his face. Now, the title of the sermon is Sitting on the Ashes. Job's sitting on the ashes his, ashes, his friends will be sitting, and we're, in a sense, this morning, sitting on the ashes with him. But perhaps I could have called it at least this section from Job's perspective, I can't eat by day, I can't sleep by night, and the woman I love don't treat me right. <laughs> I should have been a country singer. Uh. Now, admittedly, her solution makes sense from a human perspective. She wants her husband out of his misery, an an emotional misery. You've got to remember that she shares. They together lost ten children in one day. Can you imagine such a loss? Also imagine her and her husband burying each body, one after the other, from morning light to night. What she had to go through was so awful. Perhaps she longed for death, too. In his book, Seasons of Sorrow, Pastor Tim Challies writes of the day that his 20-year-old son, Nick, died unexpectedly. In all the years I've been writing, I've never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself, my dear son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. That day he goes on to describe was a day when he and his wife, cried and cried until they could cry no more there were no tears left to cry in another chapter called from grave to glory he recalls his thoughts when he laid his son in the grave my life has known no moment harder than this my my heart has known no sorrow deeper than this nothing could be more final Nothing more sobering, nothing more shattering than watching my son's casket be lowered inch by inch, foot by foot, until it comes to rest to the bottom of the grave, his grave. And as I hear the words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, a piece of me is being buried, a piece of my heart, a piece of my soul, a piece of my very self. What Job and his wife went through in losing all, all their possessions, and all their children was awful. But that's not all. Her shaved head husband, the greatest man of all the people of the East, is sitting not upon a throne at the city gate, rendering wise judgments, people coming to him for his advice, as he should be, but he's on a garbage dump with little or no clothes on, scraping his wombs. Her lifestyle, her family, her marriage, her everything has changed in two days. And perhaps day after day for weeks or months, Job later speaks of months of emptiness. Perhaps she has visited this great man, a man she saw it all. He went from good to great, and now he's gone from great to gross. She believes in God. She doesn't doubt God's existence. She certainly doesn't go- doubt God's power. So with her advice, she's just saying, let's get this over with. Stop playing Mr. Pious at time to take matters into your own hands. Stop blessing God's name and instead curse him, because as soon as you curse him, he will destroy you. You will be better off dead. Death is better than this, right? Wrong. Very wrong. You see, Satan may have slithered away from the scene. We won't hear from him again. But the devil's advocate, as Augustine calls her, echoes his voice. Satan's test was tough, chapter 1. But her test might be even tougher. Yes, we ought not underestimate just how tempting her suggestion must have been. A man often feels most helpless when his helpmate helps not. But listen, Job doesn't eat the fruit that she offers. He snubs Satan's supporter, saying to her, verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. In other words, you're no fool. So why are you thinking and why are you speaking like a fool? Listen, we've lived through a lot. We've lived through death and destruction, but we've also had great times of joy and celebration and life together. Shall we, he says, notice he includes her, shall we receive good from God, like the gift of children? Shall we not receive evil or troubles like the death of children? Put differently, honey, keep trusting. Keep trusting in God even through these incomprehensible cruelties. Well, after this incredibly wise, or what I think is incredibly wise, and pastoral response, we don't know how she responds. Does she listen? Does she sit there silently with him during the coming storm? There's, there's only a hint that she does. Well, there's only one more mention of her in the story, I think it's chapter 19, that she can smell his bad breath, Job blesses with her and through her their family with ten more children. Read the end of the story. So it can safely be said that Job and his wife stayed on talking terms and on touching terms. It can also be said that she stuck with him. She stuck with him. She didn't go back to her clan. She stuck with him through it all until the very end. Now, whatever we make of their relationship at this moment and throughout the drama, there's an important lesson here for all of us. A lot of love from a lover and a little help from a friend or three or four friends goes a long way. Goes a long way. It is not absolutely necessary that we have others in our journey of faith to encourage and support us. I'm sure there will be some hermits in heaven. It's not absolutely necessary, but it is near impossible. I've never seen it in our journey to make it to the celestial city on our own. Job could have used some help here, and we all need such help. So let us pray, even now as I'm preaching, let us pray for our marriages. Let us pray for healthy marriages, for each other's marriages. And let us pray for what I hope you have here, a strong, supportive Christian community. Because we need it, just like Job needed it. Now back to the story the narrator. Instead of focusing on Job's wife's response and their relationship... He returns back to Job, and he says this, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This comment makes my top ten understatements of the Bible. It's right beneath, after 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, Jesus by himself was hungry. I'll bet he was. Job not sinning with his lips was one of the hardest things to do in human history, quite seriously. And the point of this high commendation is that we as readers ought to applaud and emulate, follow Job's faithful endurance. Let me offer two ways we can do that, two ways we can emulate, follow what he does here. First, like Job, we should have a high view of God's sovereignty, a high view of God's sovereignty. When God says to Satan, although you enticed me against him to destroy him without any reason, the word me just leaps off the page because it opens afresh the mystery of the problem of evil. It is clear that Satan is responsible for the attacks upon Job's family and his flesh. The blood is on his hands, on Satan's hands. However, God acknowledges his sovereignty over all. And Job later speaks of receiving both good, health and wealth, and evil, troubles and tragedies from God's hand. To, To Job, God is completely sovereign, completely sovereign. Do we believe that? And second, it really matters how we respond to our sovereign God in times of trouble. It really matters how we respond to him. Like Job, we can trust God. We can continue to hope in God. Or like his wife at this point, we can doubt and despair. Well, we should trust and we should be hopeful. Let me give you a picture of this. A few years ago, a group of pastors, we gathered together for a few days. We had the privilege of being with the renowned theologian Kevin Van Hooser, I'm sure some of you know Kevin, who I found to be just a humble, kind, witty, brilliant man. At one point, Professor Van Hooser shared with the group a story about his mother, who then lived with them. She's gone to be with the Lord since. She had dementia, and she suffered from this awful disease for over a decade. He said sometimes she would just walk around the house and she would recite the first line from Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Other times she would hum her favorite gospel song just to close her walk with thee. And when she would hum this, Kevin said, I would sometimes feed her the lines because she forgot them. She remembered the tune but not the lines. Line by line, and she'd repeat them back. I am weak, but thou art strong. I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long. I'll be satisfied as long. As I walk, let me walk close to thee. As I walk, let me walk close to thee. And it follows the famous refrain. Just a closer walk with thee. Grant it, Jesus, this is my plea, daily walking close to thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. Followed by these lines through this world of toils and snares. That's the world we live in. Toils and snares. If I falter, Lord, who cares? Why? Who with me my burden shares? None but thee, dear Lord, none but thee. When my feeble life is over, time with me will be no more. Guide me gently, safely over to thy kingdom's shore, to thy shore. When we find ourselves sitting on the ashes, in the struggles of life, or at the end of our lives, can we say with Job, I'll take the good days from God, but I'll also take the bad ones? And can we hum? With the hymn writer. Keep me, Jesus. Walk with me, Jesus. Guide me gently, safely to thy kingdom shore. And can we recite from heart and from the depths of our heart Jesus' promise in this world we will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, having looked at Job's initial response, his wife's response, Job's next response, finally, we come to the friend's response. In George de la Tour's painting, Job and his wife six, from the 1600s, uh, Job is viewed quite posi- Job's wife is viewed quite positively. She has light all around her. It says she's bringing light to this dark situation. Well, if this artist is depicting the moment she arrives on the scene, he's, he's perhaps right. Scripture doesn't give us that moment like it does for the friends here. However, he's certainly long, wrong if he's depicting the conversation that we just went through. She doesn't soothe his soul. She doesn't bring light. She doesn't bring comfort to him. She questions his sanity and his innocence. She offers devilish advice. She speaks foolishly. In contrast for now is the sympathy and the silence offered by Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The book of Job records their idea, arrival, attitudes, and actions. If you look with me now at verses 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil, these troubles that had come upon him, they came each from their own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. With their arrival, we might think the testing is over. Job has made it, the protagonist has persevered, help is finally there to support him. But alas, their arrival introduces a final test, the final test, the toughest test, the longest test. Satan and Job's wife, they bow out of the drama. They make no further appearances, while Job's closest companions cozy up to him. However, there's no hint of testing here. Instead, we are introduced to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar as Job's three friends. Like Job, they're from the east, east of the Promised Land. They're Gentiles, and apparently they are considered quite wise. Their wisdom is shown here, in six different ways. The first three in verse 11. First, after hearing of Job's demise, they heard that evil had come upon him. They individually decided to do something about it, to act. Second, they gathered together collectively, individually, now collectively, they came together, each from his own place. Third, they decide to journey together to the land of Uz to comfort him. They made an appointment. They rescheduled their Appointments, and they made one appointment, and they came together to go to him. Next in verse 12, describes what Job's friends see when they finally arrive on the scene. They did not recognize him, likely because his head was shaved, his body emaciated, and his face scarred and scabbed with sores. Verses 12b and 13 describe what they do next. The fourth and fifth ways they show wisdom. Fourth, they grieve for Job opening their mouths not to counsel him or to correct him, but to weep. That's why they open their mouths, to weep. They raised their voices and wept. And fifth, they not only join in his sorrow, the tears that are shed, they also attempt to join in his suffering through two signs of solidarity. They tear their robes, just like he did. They grab a fistful of ashes from the ash heap, and they toss it towards heaven, and upon their heads they let it fall. And these actions symbolize their sympathy. They also symbolize their solidarity. Your troubles are now our troubles. Your ash heap will move over. Let us sit with you, brother. And six, because they saw his suffering was very great, they show further sympathy and solidarity through sitting. They sat on the ground with him. And silence, silence, no one spoke a word to him. The perfect amount of time, seven days and seven nights. Yes, as these brothers mourn their brothers' losses, their their patience is portrayed here as being boundless. There's no end to it. Now, while there will be much to criticize, here there is much to commend. They did what few people would do. They hear about Job's troubles, and they reply not by sending a text, or in their case, a messenger with a message, but by traveling themselves from different regions of the world. Word came to them. They dropped whatever they were doing. They organized their schedules. They came together so they might travel together to show Job their love and try to bring him some comfort. It's remarkable. And in doing so, they model to us supportive sympathy. They model to us loyal friendship. When we review their actions, there's much to learn. When we hear of Job's troubles, they act upon that information. How few of us do that right away? When when we hear of a death of someone in our family, do we we make a call that very day? Do we write a note? When we learn that someone from the church is in the hospital, do do we go and visit? And when we're there, do we sing a hymn to them or read a scripture that soothes their souls? Do we pray for them? Moreover, like Job's friends, are we willing to put our lives on hold in order to travel? In order to travel to a friend who is in despair or a friend who is facing death? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they sacrifice weeks, if not months, to show their sympathy, to bring their comfort, to be friends. Imagine life on the ash heap. Months without companionship. And then in the distance, three friends, four friends emerge. What a sight for sore eyes, and what a sight for a body inflicted with sores. In 2 Corinthians 7, 6, Paul writes that God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. You see that? How did God comfort Paul? By the coming of someone who visited him. The coming of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar surely comforts Job. What also surely comforts Job, as it would comfort any grieving soul, is their empathy that is expressed in incarnational ministry, by weeping with Job, by tearing their garments like Job, accepting the ash heap alongside Job, not speaking to Job because he's not speaking to them. They model for us gospel grieving. They don't check into the presidential suite at the Ritz-Carlton down the road, but they sit on the zero stars ash heap in us. They don't read anything to him, even the great verse of Romans 8.28, all things will work together for good. But they embody Revelation 8 1. There was silence. There was silence. You see, sometimes when we enter the home of a loved one who is dying, or we walk into a hospital room and we witness firsthand the inexplicable sufferings of someone we know well, someone perhaps we've nurtured in the faith for years, there's no need to say anything. You know each other. The presence, our presence, is felt. It's enough for us to be there, to hold their hand, to dab their tears, to join them in weeping. Yes, there's so much to commend about Job's friends here. However, it's difficult for us not to read, read what they say later back into these verses. We look at this scene and we, we just wish someone had some duct tape for their mouths. The sharing of the sorrows, the silence, the tears, it's so beautiful. They should have called it a day or a week, to be more accurate. They should have just ridden off into the sunset after seven days of silence, and they would have gone down into history as the picture of friendship. Artists would have painted their portraits, composers would have written oratorios, and, and Jews and Christians alike, for centuries we would have named our children after them. But alas, there are no Zophars here this morning, <laughs> I, I assume. As we will see next, a storm is about to hit. A whirlwind of words is about to blow through the ash heap. Job's friends, verse 11, what he calls in chapter 19 his close friends, his intimate friends, are about to unleash. Their full armory of rebukes and accusations and scorn and mockery. It is neither sticks or stones that will break Job's bones. It is words. It is words that will crush his inner spirit. He will soon cry out, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Guess what's recorded here in Job 2 11 through 13 is not all that was said about the friends or from the friends. In chapter 4 and following, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they will turn on Job. They will misjudge his motives. They will attack his claims. This is the last test, but this is no least test. And we wonder how. How will Job fare? Will he... Will we again hear the narrator's voice? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Will Job continue to hold fast to his integrity? Will he fear God, trust God, believe in God as his sovereign and just and merciful God? Well, if you don't know the end of the story, this afternoon you have a big but brilliant book to read through to see how Job fares. Recently, I received this email from a former ministry colleague, and she wrote this, Doug, yesterday my brother-in-law was involved in a terrible boating accident. He recently bought a new fishing boat, and it was the second or third time out on the river, or the local river. They were heading upstream. My brother-in-law was driving too fast. They came upon a low, hidden cable wire. It was left from a walking bridge that had been removed a few months before, and he saw the cable. cable at the very last second, he ducked, and he yelled for his friend to duck, but there wasn't enough time. And he was clotheslined, thrown off the boat into the water, and drowned. The man was a father of four children, and now his widow of 20 years. My brother-in-law walked away. She said, fine, physically, but not doing well emotionally, understandably. My sister is having a hard time knowing how to comfort him, as you can understand, this is somewhat complicated, very tragic incident. First, can you please pray for them? Second, do you have any encouragement for him or my sister that I could pass along? How do you reply to that? How does one reply wisely to tragedy? That's what we're training ourselves in today. Well, here's part of my reply. I pray even now it was wise. My dear friend, it's hard to know what to say the thoughts that come to mind, especially for your brother-in-law, is to remember the gospel. To remember the gospel that Jesus forgives all our sin and all of our foolishness. And that good news is his only hope. He'll never get over it in any real sense. He'll always feel responsible. So he will need to remind himself regularly that he is forgiven. I also said, in fact, as I started my reply, I said, oh my, what a horrific tragedy. Like Job's three friends at the end of Job 2. I wrote this years ago. How else should we respond? Unbelief. They couldn't believe what had happened to Job when they got there. Inaudible, wailing, they raised their voices and wept in silence. No one spoke a word to him. They just joined him, you see, in the silence, in the darkness, in the cold, in the bed of ashes. In Job 2, 1 through 13, Through both Job's and his friends' wise responses, God offers us wisdom on how to respond to inexplicable tragedies. The wise, this is what we do or should do. We trust in our sovereign God. We comfort others through the sacrifice of time and of presence. And we walk closely with each other so that together we might continue a closer walk with thee, with our Lord Jesus Christ a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Let's pray. Our God, our great God, we don't always understand your workings in the world, but what we do know about you, we know, Father, that you so loved the world that you did something about it. You sent your Son. And our Lord Jesus, we know that you are acquainted with grief. You are acquainted with all of the sorrows of this world. You were a man of sorrow from the day you were born. You were born into sorrow. But we also think especially of the great sacrifice of the cross and what happened before the cross, the mockeries, the betrayal of friends, the physical brutalities against you, much worse than what Job experienced. So we thank you, our Lord Jesus, for your incarnational ministry to us. We thank you, Spirit, the bond of love between the Trinity. We thank you that you so loved us, that you've opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel, that there is hope in tragedy, and that life comes out of death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.